Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you doing? Hi, Carrie. I am good. I have had enough of December. (laughs) But I'm good. I'm good. I'm like in the winter spirit, finally. I'm taking my vitamin D. I'm buckling up, you know? How about you? Yeah, I actually like December. I think it's the one dark winter month when there are really fun, festive things to look forward to. And then it all goes downhill from there. So I'm trying to hold on (laughs) to the brightness of the holidays. At least the city is covered in twinkling lights. That I really dig. I love it when when all the lights go up. It's good. I love the lights. I love that we have our metaphorical mince pies with us (laughs) (laughs) for this recording. I do. I have a, a plate piled high of metaphorical mince pies and I have a metaphorical elf outfit on also. Oh, how adorable. <laughs> I wish I could see you if only we recorded with video. What are you wearing? <laughs> <laughs> I have a sexy Mrs. Claus. Oh my God, of suit. course you do. But on to the show. <laughs> Today we are recording what is always one of our favorite shows of the year, which is our year in review show. But it is also our last ever show. Oh my God. It came around so fast. So fast. So to celebrate our last show of 2023 and also our last ever show of literary friction. Does that, is that good? Does that sound like <laughs> Which you? Which is not how I say it at all, but <laughs> you on. do. You lean into the mic and you give it a lot of love. So yeah, the last show, we're going to shake it up a little bit. So we will, as usual, be looking back over some of our favorite reads from 2023. And we're going to gently revisit our 2022 reading resolutions reluctantly because I failed at loads of mine. We are also going to optimistically give some resolutions for the year ahead. And we're going to talk about some of the books we really can't wait to read in 2024, which is a number that makes no sense. But we will also be talking about some of our highlights from the last 10 years, can you believe it, decade of literary friction, including which authors we loved interviewing the most. We won't be telling all about the trickier ones, but there might be some juicy (laughs) tidbits for you and also which books we're happiest we found during the shows. The other thing to say is because this is our last ever show, we are for once taking our eyes off the clock. I should say Carrie is taking her eyes off the clock because I have nothing to do with the timekeeping, as you won't be surprised to hear, but we are going to let it rip. So although we only have an hour with you now on NCS, there will be an extended edit of this show available on the podcast if you want to hear more. It's so hard to say goodbye. Oh my God, We've loved doing literary friction for the last 10 years. We've had so many brilliant conversations with authors. We've read wonderful books, gotten to know each other better in different ways. And of course, we've loved interacting with our wonderful listeners. But as we said in our last minisode, even with Patreon support, it's just become unsustainable with our other jobs. And so we decided it was time to end on what we like to think of as a high. And we hope you agree. How could it not be a high? Look at <laughs> look at the roll call of authors we had this year. Yes. Blinding. Um, so we're going to be giving you a really good old list of books today. So if you need inspiration of what to buy people for Christmas or whatever holiday you might be celebrating and in whatever fashion, then listen closely. 
And also, it's your annual reminder to support your local independent bookshop, or you can head over to our bookshop.org page where we'll be posting a bumper list of all the books we mentioned today on the show. And if you like, you can support us by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. We're still up there until the end of the month. So if you want to, you know, give us a little bit more support while we're still there and subscribe and get our back catalog of 35 Patreon minisodes on topics from audiobooks to the weather, plus one final Patreon minisode just for our patrons at the end of this month, please subscribe. Okay, I think that is all the business out of the way. Shall we get started? Yes, let's talk about books, baby. Great. (laughs) Okay, so in our first segment today, we're going to talk about our favorite books that we read in 2023. And as usual, our list will be mostly books that were published in 2023, but we're not limiting it to that because we believe in reading outside of the current publishing cycle, as we've discussed in past years. So first, I want to ask, how was your year in reading, Octavia? I will preface this answer by saying that, of course, I was crap at keeping up with my list of books that I've read. It's had to really take a minute <laughs> to figure out what I actually <laughs> read this year. Because I also I read I read an enormous amount this year because for work I took on more and more work that meant I had to read books, which is you know a wonderful thing to do with my life, but also means an enormous amount of books past my eyes and, and I don't always remember them all. So when I really sat down and thought about it, I realized actually I had a pretty mixed year. And I think because for various reasons, mainly to do with time, I read more for work than for pleasure this year. And that included some really fantastic stuff that I might not have read otherwise. But it also meant that I was reading quite a lot of stuff that I didn't love so much, which will remain nameless. But (laughs) yeah, I think I'm really finishing the year with an incredibly strong longing to make time for more books that I want to read. And that means they won't necessarily just be the latest things that are being published or, you know, as you mentioned, like being governed by the publicity cycle. I've like really longing to just go and stand in a bookshop and be drawn to things and choose them. I'm glad to have read most of the stuff I read this year. I also feel a little bit oppressed by (laughs) my lack of choice. (laughs) Yeah. In some ways, I love having to read a book because it just, it makes you do it. You just have to do it. But at the same time, yeah, it's, you can't choose and it will always feel like work no matter how much you love it. There's nothing like just sitting down and taking a book that you want to read and taking the time to read it. And it's important to build that into our lives if we can. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of the most amazing things about the show is for the most part, we do get to choose. And so it is reading for pleasure as well as work. You know, the Venn diagram closes. Sometimes you've made me read stuff I really didn't like. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, on the whole, it's like this sweet spot. It is, it is. And sometimes I think we've chosen things that we thought were going to be great, but maybe we didn't end up loving. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but in terms of me, thanks to our reading resolutions, I now religiously keep a list of all the books that I have read. And, you know, I went back and consulted it in preparation for this show. And what I noticed was that this was definitely the year that I really got into audiobooks. Yeah. 
That's completely inappropriate that I take credit for that. Uh, you have partial credit for it, I think, because you put me on to a few audiobooks that really changed the way I thought about what the listening experience could be like. Thank you. And you've been talking about them for so many years. I'm so. glad to have that on record. Back from the beginnings of the show when I banged on about book at bedtime. No, <laughs> that's different. Anyway, looking back at my list... Almost half of the books that I read, and certainly a larger percentage that are read for pleasure rather than for the show, were audiobooks, if you can believe it, which is a really great thing. I don't feel bad about it at all. I feel great about it, not least because it's given me another way to read books. And I love that I can now be listening when I'm gardening or running or cooking. It means I read or listen to really long books that I wouldn't necessarily have the time to actually read. It's great. I love it. And it just adds a wonderful new dimension to books that I have really learned to enjoy. You know, I think you miss some things when you're listening to audio, but you really gain some things from the narrator's interpretation. One problem with this, I will say, is that I definitely gravitate towards a certain kind of book in audio. I find it a lot easier to listen to novels and they have to be quite narrative, otherwise I lose the plot. Although I did start listening to some great narrative nonfiction, including Killers of the Flower Moon, which I mentioned on the show. So maybe it's also limited my reading a little bit. And I think looking back at the list of books I read last year, I think it was less varied, actually, because of this. I don't know. But then again, listening back to the show from last year in preparation for this one, I was complaining about how I read too many of the same kind of novels. <laughs> Maybe this is just a problem with me and not with audiobooks that I'm just finding different excuses for why it happens. But anyway, let's talk about our favorite books that we read last year. What's your first one? My first one is Kairos by Jenny Erpenbeck, which is translated by Michael Hoffman from the German. And I recommended this book on the show before, so I won't go on too long about it, but it's just a total masterclass in pacing and tone. And also it's one I read for work and I might not have picked it up if I hadn't been doing an interview with Jenny. So I'm extremely grateful to my lovely colleagues at Open Book for this one because they brought it into my life. And it's ostensibly a novel, if you don't know, about the breakdown of a passionate relationship, but it's actually, I think, as much about geopolitics as it is about love and about history and just about the impossibility of two opposing forces, right? So mm. the author Declan Ryan actually wrote a really good review of it and he described it as the imbalance of power, death of idealism and creeping paranoia that characterize their relationship as a study of geopolitics in miniature, which I just think is like the perfect way to describe this book. So it takes the romantic relationship between two people and uses that as a microcosm through which to explore what's happening in Germany at that time. It's really clever. And I think the techniques that Erpenbeck uses to make the reader reflect on her main themes are just absolutely stellar. So she's an exquisitely skilled writer, but you never feel handled. You're just in the human story and then you realize that she's been guiding you all along through the structure and everything. So yeah, it's phenomenal. Oh, I need to read that. Yeah, you're going to love it. I love the sound of it. And I love the sound of it when you recommended it. What about you? What's up first for you? You may not be surprised to hear this, but up first for me is Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Can I just say, it's only not one of mine because I knew you'd want to recommend yes. it. Yes. <laughs> okay. This can be a joint recommendation. But I think this is the book that gave me the most pure pleasure in this past year. I loved listening to it. I loved it. I keep thinking about it. I've been recommending it to everyone. It's a wonderful book. It's won multiple prestigious prizes, and I've already recommended it along with Naomi Klein recently. So in some ways, it doesn't need another recommendation here. But in other ways, it does, because I just want to say again that the hype is 
real. It is. This is the story of Demon Copperhead, born in Appalachia to a kind but drug-addicted mother who is forced to make his own way in the world at a very early age, despite what life throws at him. It's modeled on Dickens's David Copperfield. I'm told that it's fun to find the correspondences if you know both stories. But for me, who didn't really know the story of David Copperfield, what made this so profound was its combination of rich, rollicking, character-driven storytelling and a deep appreciation and celebration of the history and the people of Appalachia, a region that is still the butt of America's jokes. It's a novel that's basically filled with righteous anger, especially in the wake of the opioid epidemic, and yet but somehow it's filled with pathos and love and excellent storytelling. It's just what I look for in a novel, and I'm so glad that she wrote it. Yeah, it's phenomenal. What's your next recommendation? Very different in tone. It's Open Throat by Henry Hoke, which was published this year. And honestly, I didn't know that I needed Hecate, the Hungry Mountain Lion in my life until I read this book. <laughs> but now I, I could have told you that. Yeah, you could have said, right? <laughs> and the thing is, now I genuinely, I can't imagine a time when they weren't there. I think about this mountain lion regularly, probably daily, and its voice, it's really, really stayed with me. And this novel was one that landed in my lap exactly when I needed it. I was feeling bogged down with reading that I wasn't hugely enjoying, and I was just feeling a bit jaded by the whole kind of project. And then this hugely original, stylish little book jolted me out of my torpor. And you know, sometimes you really need that. You need something that's just completely different from anything you've come across before to reinvigorate your belief in the power of fiction. And I mean, the, the plot ostensibly is about a mountain lion living in LA, trying to survive in the Hollywood Hills, just underneath the Hollywood sign. And and just when I recommended it on the show the first time, I'm not going to give too much away because I really think it's a book best experienced for yourself with with as little preamble as possible. But I will just say that Henry Hoke has given this lion just such a memorable, witty, poetic voice. I love the way he uses the animal perspective as a critical lens on humanity and on the world we have created and are destroying. And he really expertly handles this kind of naivety that can sometimes really beautifully expose corruption or hypocrisy. So yeah, it's very deeply thoughtful about what happens to a soul when forced to live in precarity, which I think is something we could all do well to consider more. But it's also just linguistically clever and generally like funny and clever and philosophical. So it's lots of stuff I like. Lovely. I really want to read that too. Yeah. What's next for you? Next for me is The Forbidden Notebook by Alba de Céspedes, translated from Italian by Anne Goldstein. Good old Anne Goldstein. Yeah, we love her. We do. Past guest. <laughs> so this was a novel that was first published in 1952, but this translation just came out in 2023. And I am so glad to have read this book last year, which was actually a present from my old boss, Patrick, who was also the first person to give me my brilliant friend by Elena Ferrante. So a supplier of excellent Italian literature. But anyway, it was originally written in magazine installments by this Cuban-Italian writer, de Cespedes, about a woman in post-war Italy who feels compelled one day to buy a notebook and to begin to record her innermost thoughts in it, and also to hide it from her husband and her children who find even the idea of her having thoughts that are separate from theirs hilarious and unthinkable. Um, <laughs> and in fact, she has to keep hiding it in different places around the house because she doesn't have a spot of her own where nobody would look or sort of like 
respect her privacy. Oh my God, that's the thought that freaks me out so deeply. <laughs> yeah. And and what pours out in this notebook is, you know, her record of daily goings on and what's happening in her family. It's also about a society in flux post-war Italy and a profound dissatisfaction with a life that has been lived for others. A dissatisfaction that compels her to keep writing, but also absolutely terrifies her. And Mm. it's a real moral struggle that she's having in this book. And this profound psychological portrait of womanhood and of the sacrifices of domesticity. And it just feels remarkably fresh even now. It's a really beautiful, thoughtful, intense book. And I'd recommend it to anyone, especially those who love Elena Ferrante. Yeah, that really, I want to read it. I think you would like it. I'd be so interested to hear what you think. What's your next favorite book? Next is Alone by Daniel Schreiber, translated by Ben Ferguson. So it's a big year for German literature for me, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't have predicted that somehow. I know. I'm delighted. So this one was actually on my list of books from last year that I was looking forward to. And it's just like wonderful when it doesn't disappoint. You know what I mean? When you're like excited about something and it pays off. So, you know, Daniel is a friend of mine. And I think part of my excitement about it was that I've always wanted to be able to read his writing. And because I don't speak or read German, I've had a barrier. And now with Ben's translation, I can. And it is just such an elegant and deeply reflected, I guess it's, it's like a long essay about living alone, building a life alone. And it's full of really beautiful meditations on things like solitude and the meaning of freedom and how do we find personal freedom within the structures that we inherit, you know, that pre-exist us. He's looking at the consoling power, but also the limits of friendship and what we can expect from friendship what to do with social expectation once it becomes clear that maybe what they're offering us is unrealistic. And I think, you know, it's very in vogue to interweave personal writing with, you know, ideas from other writers and thinkers and maybe like sociology, maybe a little bit of journalistic style writing. And some people do it better than others, but I really think this book is a masterclass in finding the right balance between the personal and the general and a kind of sociologically contextual, you know? So he has literary references, very erudite references, but the pitch and the register with which he writes about these things is so open and accessible and like being in conversation, you know? So it's very, very easy to read, but beneath that is this rigor that means that you're aware that this voice is interrogating the structures that we're thinking about and actually thinking quite radically about how we might resist them and shrug them off in order to discover what we want from our own life. So I really love that it's both scholarly and also very personal and that I can hear my friend's voice so clearly through it. You know, like I think it's very jarring when you know someone and then you read their work and you don't recognize their voice in it. Whereas this really just feels like being in conversation with Daniel, which is a delightful thing to do. So I'm glad more and more people can enjoy it, you know? Wonderful. What's next for you? Next for me is a novel called The Beasting by Paul Murray, which was also published in 2023. This is just another big novel that I loved being inside of. It's the story of an Irish family, the Barnes, who are on the verge of financial ruin when the father, Dickie's car dealership, starts to go bust. And the novel is written in different sections told by different members of the family. So gradually we learn the history of how they have come to this point but also the deep secrets and inner lives that all of them hold within themselves, often from each other. It's a book that is very interested in the relationship between our inner selves and the person that we project into the world, but also through this one family 
Murray is tackling things like the impending environmental crisis or the happening environmental crisis, rather, capitalism, contemporary Irish history, and particularly the legacy of the so-called Celtic Tiger and its collapse after 2008. So if you like Jonathan Franzen on his better days, as I do. Ah, so salty! <laughs> Paul Murray is a thing in himself, and he's not a lesser Franzen. He's he's doing something different. But I think if that's the kind of thing you love, this is absolutely your sweet spot. And it was absolutely my sweet spot. I just was so gripped by this novel from beginning to end. And again, I listened to the audiobook and the narrators are amazing. So yeah, big vote for The Beasting by Paul Murray. Yeah, that's on my list. I can't wait. I'm saving up. I can't wait. What's your final book that you loved? My final one is Doppelganger by Naomi Klein, because I I had such a good time reading this book. And I I was over the moon that Naomi was then able to come on the show to talk about it. And it is just a wild ride. Before I say more about it, though, if you haven't listened to our interview with Naomi, then I really, really urge you to go and do that immediately, (laughs) because it was a fascinating conversation. And she speaks so brilliantly about her work. If you don't know about the book, if you've been living under a rock, (laughs) it basically takes us its jumping off point. The fact that Naomi Klein kept getting confused with another Naomi. And this other Naomi was Naomi Wolf, who's another author whose views were getting steadily more harmful and extreme. And she essentially went from being a kind of feminist legend to a right-wing extremist. So crazy, crazy swing. And it led to this rhyme going around online that went, if the Naomi be Klein, you're doing just fine. If the Naomi be Wolf, oh buddy. (laughs) (laughs) That's not really a rhyme, is it? Wait, isn't it? Oh, buddy, woof. Oh, it missed the last bit off when I Googled it. (laughs) As I read it, I was like, wait, it doesn't rhyme. Yeah, anyway, you get the picture. You do not want to get your Naomi's confused. So basically, when Naomi Klein started investigating this, she realized that it seemed to mirror what was happening in politics generally, this popular swing towards the right and the kind of unchecked growth of conspiracy theories. So she essentially follows the other Naomi through the looking glass down into this wild world of anti-vaxxers and Steve Bannon acolytes. And the book ends up being a brilliantly put together exploration of why our politics has become so warped. So we let go of the initial doppelganger quite early on, and then she just turns her laser sharp focus and analysis to what's really happening. And it's it's a brilliant read and it will leave you feeling very fired up and and ready for activism, I think. Yeah, seconding that. And also, I know that it's a great book because things keep happening to me in my life or I keep reading about things in the news and immediately something Naomi Klein said in that book occurs to me. It's right, like exactly. she, she gave us a language for talking about our present moment. And I'm so grateful for that. Which is so her skill in all of her other work as well. She's She's such a precious kind of cultural commentator, basically. Totally. What's your last one? My last one is the novel Fire Rush. Oh, yeah. By Jacqueline Crooks, which was also published in 2023. And I love that this was both one of the books that I was looking forward to in our 2022 show and also that we had her on the show. And I'm so glad that I actually enjoyed it and that we were able to talk to her. This is a novel about a young woman who is part of the dub scene in London in the early years of the 1980s. And it's basically about her quest to find herself when her life takes a series of unexpected turns. And I don't want to say more because I think it's it's a novel you should experience rather than know much going in. But I loved it mainly because I loved how Jacqueline Crooks uses language to make me feel something. 
everything. And that's whether it's the experience of being in a sweaty dub reggae club or falling in love or being trapped in a coercive relationship or walking through Jamaica. It's just, it's a novel that is so full of life and so full of sensation and so full of feeling. And I also love the portrait it painted of the Jamaican diaspora in the UK and its connection back to the homeland. It's just, there's so much in it and it feels unique too. It doesn't feel like a lot of other things that I've read. And that was really special too. You know, there's a lot of fiction coming out right now that feels a little samey and Jacqueline Crooks absolutely was just doing her own thing. Yeah. And I was so grateful to that. I second it a hundred percent. Great. And very quickly, do you have some honorable mentions? I do. I do. My first one is August Blue by Deborah Levy. Just love the way that she thinks and the way that she writes and the way that she uses images and places in her writing, whether she's writing fiction or nonfiction. I was just really happy to be back in her authorial universe in this novel. And it's full of thoughtful reflections on things like creativity, relationships, both to parental figures and maybe romantic figures and friends, and really crucially to the self. So yeah, that's my number one. Number two is Kick the the Latch by Catherine Scanlan, which is just a masterclass in voice and restraint. And I never thought that I would be so absorbed by a book about a horse trainer, <laughs> but it is electric and so profoundly original, like genuinely like nothing else I've ever read. And I think actually it's my favorite title of the year, Kick the Latch. What an incredible title, it's right? so evocative. Isn't it's it? Like- even the sounds in your mouth are amazing, aren't they? Yeah, incredible, like a bolt from the blue. So yeah. And then my third one is Greek Lessons by Han Kang, translated by Deborah Smith and Emily A. Wan, which is a small book that contains the whole world. I think that's the best way I can describe it. Read it slowly, let it sink in, and it will make you think differently afterwards. And then I'm just sneaking in one more, which is The Fraud by Zadie Smith, which is both (laughs) easy to read and demanding in the best ways. And it's also just Zadie's back and it's great. (laughs) I need to read it. Yeah, I can't wait. you do. It's also, I reckon, would be amazing on audio. Maybe that's my next audiobook. I'm very voice-driven, yeah. And I'm teeing up. What's yours? Tell me quick, your honourable mentions. So my honourable mentions, the first is Burnham Wood by Eleanor uh, Patton. Yes. This is an incredibly well-written eco-thriller that just takes no prisoners. None. <laughs> and I have so much respect to Eleanor Catton for just going for it. She's sending up everyone on both sides of the political divide at the same time, and she does not care what you think she's taking you on this wild ride and I loved it my second honorable mention is Red Memory by Tanya Brannigan who we also had on the show this is a book that helped me understand China today in terms of the cultural revolution but also it's just a profound reflection on the role of memory in our personal and national histories and it's just a tour de force of journalism I think the best example of how journalists can write great books and great histories. And then finally, my third one is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark, another audiobook discovery. This was originally published in, in 2004. It was a huge sensation. I've been meaning to read it since then. But this is a long totally transfixing story about the return of magic to England in the early 1800s that takes in things like the Napoleonic Wars, English society, and, you know, the realm of fairies. It, you know, Susanna Clarke 
is just one of those people I want to live inside her mind. I don't know how she came up with this. I don't know how she wrote it. I don't understand it. I am just so grateful that she exists and decided to put pen to paper and bring these characters to life. Yeah, she's a remarkable writer. Okay, we'll be back in a minute to reflect gently on our reading resolutions from last year and make some (laughs) new ones that we will definitely keep. Okay, now we are on to the segment where we revisit kindly and gently (laughs) our reading resolutions from last year, which I definitely remembered all through the year. I definitely didn't have to be reminded of them by listening to the show Uh from last year and take stock of how we did. Such a dad joke, Carrie Plitt. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when you dad joke. You're the queen of dad jokes, so you cannot talk. I know. But anyway, how did you do Octavia? What was your first resolution? My first one was read in less of a hurry, which I categorically did not get better at this. In fact, I think I may have got worse (laughs) (laughs) because I just, this year was, you know, I had even more gigs and, and work in general that required me to read. So my reading kind of pile was just enormous and often they were pretty big books. And I just, I think I just have to make my peace with it. I am going to have to always hustle it. And that's just how it is. I think you can cut yourself some slack there. It's like, how do you not read in a hurry? You know? Yeah. If you're reading to a deadline, how do you, how do you do it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think there's a way around it. No. And you can't always be told about work before, you know, more than a week or two before you get it. That was the one resolution I did think of throughout the year because I kept thinking, oh, damn it. (laughs) I'm failing. But what was your first one? My first one was read more before bed, which was one that I had carried over from the year before. And I, once again, did not get any better at this. (laughs) (laughs) Though I do actually think I've gotten better at going to bed earlier. So maybe that's the first step in this. And the next step is to put my phone somewhere else and also switch out the silly sitcoms that I like to watch to relax for books. So I remain hopeful about this one because it's something I did all through my youth and I've just gotten out of the habit and it's definitely phones and screens. So there's a way to bring it back. I know I'm capable of it. It makes me feel so much better. I really like it. I really want to try to do it. I believe in you. Thank you, Octavia. What was your next resolution? It was to read some of the massive nonfiction books on my shelf. And listen, I did not manage to get to any of the massive nonfiction books on my shelf, but I did read some other new massive nonfiction books. So oh, I yeah, I think I get to give myself that one, right? Yeah, full points for that, definitely. I don't know, maybe half a point because I still have not read Surveillance Capitalism, but maybe 2024 is the year for Shoshana Zuboff and me to finally get to know one another. How many people do you think have actually read that whole book? I would say it's a very small number of people probably but i we need to, we need to yes you of know? course but i'm just saying don't beat yourself up you know okay thank you darling what's next on yours <laughs> i can't remember i'm trying to remember yours and i can't actually remember them. what big books did you read well most recently it was far from the tree the andrew solomon which is a big book that is a big old book yeah and i loved it great yeah. okay yeah full points thanks babe <laughs> What's next for you? Well, my next resolution was reading some targeted nonfiction books, which I did. 
I read Empire of Pain by Patrick Redden-Keefe right at the beginning of the year. And as you know, I loved it. The best book ever. So it was going really well with this resolution. And then I did not read the one other book that I said I was going to read, which was The Ruin of All Witches by Malcolm Gayskill. But revisiting this reminded me that I wanted to read that because I had just completely forgot. And I just started listening to it on audio. And I would say I'm about halfway through. I'm really enjoying it. I'm definitely going to finish it before the end of the year. So I'm giving myself full marks for this. Very good. Yeah. Also, wowee, Massachusetts in the 1600s, not a nice place to live. They banned (laughs) dancing, Octavia. Wow. Yeah. And also, you know, it's about witches. So that that didn't end well. But yeah, the Puritans not having a great time. Oh, no, they were absolute assholes. Yeah. So glad I wasn't there. I have to say, for many reasons. (laughs) But enjoying the book, enjoying the experience of reading about it. What was your next resolution? Mine was to read more poetry. And as I said I would in our last year in review, I did begin the year with a book of poetry. I started the year by reading Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head by Walsan Shire. And I found it to be a hugely powerful and moving collection and one that I was really glad to have read almost all in one go, you know, like when you sit down and listen to an album. And I really intended to carry carry on that way with poetry. But I have to admit that other than that, I'm actually, I found that I was pretty out of sync with being able to do that, with being able to really sink into a full collection and give it my attention. And it's something I used to do a lot more of. And I am annoyed that I've lost that relationship with reading poetry in that way. Mm. But I did enjoy reading more poetry in general this year. And it was usually one poem at a time. And through some of the social media accounts I, I mentioned last time as well, just that kind of throw a poem a day at you. And it's it's a really wonderful way to integrate just poetry reading into your kind of general pauses in your daily life whenever you turn to social media. And someone's cat, and then it's someone's like, exciting new job opportunity or baby and then a great poem (laughs) great (laughs) poetry interrupting the void but yeah I I also even found myself going back to reading some Lorca poems in Spanish and that felt particularly good like it's wonderful to connect with that mode of kind of language speaking and and language understanding I I think that is you did great thanks darling I did I did great (laughs) I'm giving you full marks you give me an A plus yes thanks teacher Okay, next. Next resolution was read more than one book at once sometimes, which I think I did. In fact, there were a number of books that year that I put down and then returned to later after finishing other books, including The Forbidden Notebook, which I just recommended. And yeah, I think also I did this more because of my audiobooks thing, because I often had an audiobook on the go along with a physical book or two. And I just got used to juggling books more and realized that it didn't dull my appreciation of them or mean that I didn't pick them back up when the time wasn't right. Some things I abandoned, but I also, you know, became a little bit more okay with that just being a part of my reading life. So this is good. I think I did this. And I think it is really good because it helps me read more books and more diverse books. You know, as you, of course, pointed out on the show last year, you know, sometimes you just get stuck in a nonfiction book and you want some fiction and then you can return to the nonfiction. And that's great. So, yeah, this is a good one. Excellent. A plus plus. Thank you. A plus plus plus. Oh, plus plus plus. Wow. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what's what's your last resolution? Well, mine was to pass on more books. And I definitely did a lot more of this than the year before. But my 
dream of sending people home from like dinner at my place with a book in their hand didn't quite materialize because my partner and I are still living out of boxes <laughs> and we have not had many people around because we for a long time didn't have a table. I've definitely been much more diligent about taking books to local charity shops once I've read them and you know I'm pleased to think that they go back into circulation and then I keep the ones that I can't bear to part with or that I know I'll revisit but yeah I feel like uh, I would give myself half points for this one. It's not quite happened how I would it do but it will get there I think. I think you'll get there as soon as you unpack those boxes baby. Those books will be on loan. Yeah true. What's your last one? My last one was to buy more books from bookshops and join my local library. I don't know how I did this (laughs) with this one. I think I went to more bookshops in 2023 just because I was out and about more. And I always pop into Blackwell's in the center of town in Oxford. I've been in Daunt Summertown more for events and to buy gifts for people. And that's been good. I guess I have bought some books there. It hasn't been like a huge haul. And I just, I haven't joined my local library. Yeah, that one was okay. I don't, it's fine. Yeah, I think that's fine. And you'll join the library this year. I will join the library this year. I'll carry that one over. Okay, so this is our last show. We're not going to revisit these resolutions. Maybe we won't even remember we made them. But in the spirit of holding ourselves accountable, setting goals, and our continuing friendship, which will exist beyond the show, I hope, unless you have some (sighs) shocking news for me after we finish the recording. No way. (laughs) Friends forever, baby. (laughs) So I thought we should continue and make some reading resolutions. And I hope you're on board with that too. I am. I very much am. So what's your first resolution, Octavia? Okay, my first one is to organize my books because of the boxes I mentioned, where most of my books continue to be, I have absolutely no idea what I have that I haven't read yet. You know, apart from obviously surveillance capitalism, (laughs) which actually is currently propping open my bedroom window. Don't tell Shoshana. Okay, I can see why this book is haunting you. It's literally like the last thing before you go to bed and the first thing you see when you wake up. Yeah, genuinely. But like, I I need it to beat me up for some reason, you know? I don't know. I have a weird relationship with that book. But yeah, there's loads of books in those boxes that I haven't yet read. And I, I'm itching to get some shelves and sort them out so I can start reading them, you know? I think it's easy to forget that you've already got a library of stuff that you that you still want to read, you know? Yeah. And I bet that will actually be a really fun thing. Just take, you know, if you take a day and put on an audiobook or some music and just figure out how you want to organize your books and take them all out and it's just going to be a really fun process. Yeah, I think it will be really fun. Do you enjoy things like that? I do. I don't I don't like forced organization, but if I can be creative with how the organizing happens, then yeah, I really enjoy it. And I normally organize my books by themes, or but it's more instinctive than that. So sometimes people look at the shelves and they're like, why are these books together? And I'm like, because I was thinking about tomatoes. <laughs> and they all feature tomatoes in some significant way. So that is, it's quite an instinctive process for me to help me be able to find my own books when I'm referencing things. But also I have to factor John's books into the equation, which Mm. is an enormous amount of philosophy textbooks and, you know, lots of cams and things like that. So yeah, we'll see where we put those. Do you mix them or do you keep them separate from each other? We, in our old place, we mixed them, but we did, again, because we were doing it thematically. So all of the philosophy books were together, but it was quite funny because he had, you know, a lot of Hegel and the old school philosophers from his undergraduate degree. And then you could spot mine and Marloff because they were all the critical theorists from the 1960s onwards. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, as long as you just don't organize them by color, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the people who do that. I'm sure it's great. I just, I do judge you a little. Yeah, it troubles me slightly. (laughs) I know it's terrible. (laughs) 
<laughs> What's your first optimistic resolution, my love? My first optimistic resolution is to read more outside of my comfort zone, especially now that we won't be doing the show together. Because, you know, we picked the books together on the show, but we did try to have variety. We did try to pick some books that you were really invested in, some that I was really invested in. And I'm really grateful for that because it it meant I had to read things that I wouldn't necessarily have, you know, taken on my beach holiday. And because we don't have that anymore, I really want to keep doing it. So I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. I think part of it will be that I have to keep asking you for book recommendations. Oh my God, I feel the same way. Yeah, completely. And, and really honoring them and, and going for it and discussing the books with you when I'm done with them. Yeah, well, we're going to keep having these conversations. They're just not going to be recorded. Yes. <laughs> Unless we want to record them for our own pleasure, maybe. That would be weird, but okay. (laughs) Posterity, you know? Yeah, okay. Well, we could could talk about that off air, babe. (laughs) What's your next resolution? Short and sweet, but just to read more for pleasure. I just, I want to make more of a, like, concerted kind of ring around my time that I'm doing it because I do just, I do just start to feel a bit oppressed if I'm not. And it's not fair on the books I love that I'm reading for work. I feel like I need to make sure I have a better balance with that. Yeah, I support that. And I think that's a great idea. It's so important for your intellectual life, for your work life, for your writing life you know, continuing to see reading as pleasure is essential. Yeah, agreed. What about you? I I want to continue on my audiobooks kick and I want to listen to more nonfiction in audio. And this is starting with Malcolm Gaskill, who I am listening to right now with The Rune of All Witches. It definitely has to be the right books. I, I started a book called Command and Control by Eric Schlosser after watching Oppenheimer because I really wanted to know more about nuclear power and history. And actually, it's a very narrative book, but it was just the narrator. There's something about it. I just couldn't keep listening to it, and I just stopped. So I think it has to be narrative. It has to really hold my attention. And I'm just going to feel around a bit and see what kind of books those are. But I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that sounds great. How about you? What's your last resolution? Honestly, it's to read less crap journalism on my phone. (laughs) And this one really comes from Queen Zadie Smith. When I did an event with her this year, she was talking about how we read all the time without kind of much consideration. And, you know, the role of the novel as something that interrupts the kind of reading or that needs to sound different from the kind of reading we're doing all the time on our phones and computers. And it actually really left me thinking about that and how there's a particular kind of voice that that is, you know, used in comment and journalism that can be totally fine and it serves its purpose. But if that's the majority of the words I'm reading, or if it's the first words I'm reading before I'm properly awake and the last words I'm reading before I'm snoozing at night, then I think it affects your voice as a writer, actually. So I I want to be more thoughtful and more deliberate when I'm consuming things like news and comment pieces and articles and stop just having the kind of knee-jerk reflex when I'm not considering it. Yeah, I think that's a great resolution. And it's such an interesting point because it's so true. And all of these panics about people not reading anymore, of course, she's right. We read all the time. We just read in a different way. And I think it's very important to be conscious of that. Yeah. She's a wise woman. I don't know if you've heard. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's a dad joke just for you, sweetie. (laughs) I loved it, obviously. (laughs) What's your last? What's your last one? My last one is I recently subscribed to The New Yorker again, which I was very excited about. And I'm feeling a bit terrorized by it. Let me guess. You don't read it. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't been great at reading it. Once in a while, I, you know, if I'm going somewhere... 
I will often take a copy and and then I'll engage with it. But otherwise, they're just all of these magazines with brilliant writing and journalism just sitting on my coffee table unread. And I would really like to read them. So, you know, a great tip. A lot of them, there are audio versions of. And that is how I do it. Interesting. Yeah, it's great. But I do like having the hard copies of the magazines, you know? It's very sure, pleasurable. Sure, but babe, you're just not reading them, so let's hustle this along. <laughs> let's get you Let's get you in there. Okay, okay. Audio it is. Audio is the solution to all my problems now, baby. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, we'll be back soon to talk about the books we're looking forward to in 2024. Now it is time to talk about the books that we are looking forward to that are going to be published in 2024. So Octavia, what books are you looking forward to? First up for me is a novel by Sinead Gleason called Hagstone. Um, Ooh, I didn't know she was publishing a novel. That's exciting. It's really exciting, right? She's a brilliant writer of nonfiction, and now she's a brilliant writer of fiction, I, I hope, and I think she will be. So it's set on a wild and rugged island, and it's about this woman who's invited to join a mysterious commune of all women called the Indians, who want her to make a magnificent piece of art to celebrate their particular history. And apparently it's about landscape and it's about folklore and the feminine and it just sounds really interesting and also Sinead writes brilliantly about art so I'm excited to see how she brings that into the fictional mode she does oh I'm really excited about that yeah it's gonna be good what about you what's first up my first up is a novel called the ministry of time by Kayleen Bradley I really (laughs) want to read this as well yeah me too it's out in May I've heard very exciting things about this one and it's being billed by its publisher as both a time travel romance a speculative spy thriller and a workplace comedy I I love that into my veins I want it yeah so many genres mashed together and I've heard the author read just a little bit from it and it was really funny and really smart and really cool. So I'm I'm really excited about this one. What's your next one? Next for me is Olivia Lang's next book, which is called The Garden Against Time. And I have a vested interest in this one because it's partly about Olivia's own garden in Suffolk, which I spent a lot of time in, but before it became her garden because oh, it used wow. to belong. Yeah, it's, it's one of those crazy coincidences in life. It used to belong to the parents of a really, really old friend of mine. In fact, it belonged to the parents of the friend at whose wedding in that very garden I met my partner, John. So, no. Yeah. In yeah, the yeah, garden. Yeah. In the garden. I didn't know that. Yeah, truly. This in Olivia Lang's garden, I wow. met my true love. That's my kind of vested interest. But beyond that, it's a book about paradise and about the costs of seeking paradise on earth and the sometimes dark underbelly of what happens when we try that. And I just always enjoy Olivia's way of looking at things. And and I'm excited to to read her thoughts on utopia and paradise and also on gardening because I have reached gardening age. I'm curious about it now. Suddenly it's like I woke up at 38. So I'm not 38. (laughs) I woke up at 37. It was like, I'm ready to plant some bulbs. So yeah. 
I'm looking forward to it. Not many people think they're a year older than they actually are. I'm very it's impressed because by I that. try to be pessimistic about time because I know I don't understand it. So I'm basically, like, <laughs> always add a year on, and then I feel better when it's my birthday. Incredible. I yeah, <laughs> we definitely are gardening age though. I'm yeah. I'm having the same thing happen yeah. to me. What's your second one? My next one is a book called Namesake, Reflections on a Warrior Woman by N.S. Nuseba. Oh, I love this book. Oh, you've read it. I have read it, yes. Um, Nuseba is a friend of mine and she did some uh, early reading of This Ragged Grace and I've done some early reading of Namesake. It's such a fantastic book. Oh, wonderful. I also know Nuseba a little bit. You know, full disclosure, this isn't somebody I've never heard of before, but this is a collection of linked essays about the author's relationship with her ancestor, who was a warrior woman who fought alongside the prophet Muhammad and thinking about this woman's connection to kind of feminism and being an Arab woman and just bravery today. And she's a really, really wonderful writer from what I've read so far. And I just can't wait to read what she has to say in this book. Yeah, you're going to love it. No doubt. Great. Okay, what's your next? My next one is All Fours by none other than Miranda July. Her last novel, which was published a decade ago now, which makes me feel quite old, absolutely blew me away with how it managed to be both totally weird and excruciatingly emotionally on point, which I think is her brand, basically. <laughs> and now she's back with a new novel and it's about a woman upending her life in midlife. And I am extremely here for it. It sounds fantastic. That does sound fantastic. I don't, I, she's a little kooky for me. But maybe I'll get on board. Yeah. So I find some of her filmmaking a little bit too kooky, but her writing, I really don't. She's She's got grit in it. And what about your last one? My last book that I'm looking forward to is a novel called Headshot by Rita Bullwinkle, which is a novel about a teenage girl boxing tournament. Wow. And that you know like I love novels. Catnip for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sports, teenagers. I love it. I can't wait to read it. I'm very excited. <laughs> and I know you said you had some honorable mentions, right? I do. I just, there's a couple of others I really, really wanted to shoehorn in because they just sound great. First up is a book called Mongrel by Hanako Footman, which is coming from Footnote Press. And I've had a proof and it, I flicked through it. It looks really fantastic. So it shifts between three interweaving narratives about three different women of Japanese heritage in three different circumstances. And it just seems really fresh and exciting. And then my second one is a book called Topographia Hibernica by Blind Boy Boat Club, who loads of you probably already listened to. He has a wildly popular podcast and I've got it queued up on my phone and haven't got around to listening to it yet. But this is his first short story collection. And all I'm going to say is that it takes its title from a 12th century English manuscript that dehumanized the people and culture of Ireland and it spins it out. And I just, he seems like such a true original. So I'm excited. I've got, I've got a copy of it and I can't wait to get into it. So that was us looking back at 2023, looking forward to 2024, and now it's time for us to look back even further at the last 10 years of literary friction, as you seem to think I pronounce it. <laughs> and there it is. <laughs> Our favorite memories, the books we love to read. We just want to think back a little bit and reflect before we end it for the last time. So stay tuned for that.
Okay, let's think about literary friction. And I just want to ask you a few questions about some of your favorite memories. So, Octavia, who is your favorite author that we have interviewed? Oh, my God. How can I answer this, Carrie? (laughs) (laughs) I actually, you know what? I'm going to refuse the terms of the question. I refuse to have a favorite. Wow. I can't possibly. So insolent. Sorry. Sorry. It's just because I love it when you crack the whip and I just want you to do that one last time. <laughs> you must choose. That's right. Okay. If I must choose, if I must choose, I'm just, I, I'm going to, I'm going to choose a few. Okay. Can I have that? Can I have a few? Yes. I'll give you a few. Okay. Okay. So I guess first thing that comes to mind is that the conversation that I probably find myself going back to the most often was the the one I had with Ocean Wong when he was over touring with his first novel, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. And it's partly because I think we were in the studio. So it was just like, it was very intimate. And he's just a hugely magnetic person. And I find listening to him always opens up a new way of thinking about something or a new way of looking at it. You know, he's got this very soft delivery, but he has a mighty, mighty brain and and a truly original way of considering things. And really, I think at the heart of it, it is a profoundly generous conversation partner. You know, the whole hour we spent together in the studio was just a huge delight. But I also want to say, I don't think that really counts because I was on my own because you were away. <laughs> so the best interview was no! the one you had without me. Cool. <laughs> no. But Answer. That is not what I mean. I just, you know, it's just the one that I, it's, it's the one that I return to the most often to listen to him, you know. But sure. if I, if I'm picking, if I'm picking ones from shows that we did together, I absolutely loved our conversations with Maggie Nelson. We had a really fun time recording with Maggie Nelson. We did. And you remember the show we did with Leonie Ross as well. That was a fucking riot. Really fun. Yeah. She was just amazing to talk to. And that we were both did both of those remotely, but they felt really, really intimate and really you know, just alive. Also loved talking to Mary Gates Girl with you. I think we both have a thing for like slightly older American women. (laughs) Yeah, she really, she cracks the whip in her own way, doesn't she? Oh my God, yeah. we love it. We loved it. We were just putty (laughs) in her hands, basically. (laughs) Also, Chris Krause, that was a, that was a brilliant interview that we did in person in a really weird place, actually. Yeah, in her publicity apartment. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Above a very large poster of a Moldavar movie. A Moldavar. Yeah. 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 It was all about my mother, I think, which just yeah. all feels very intense. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that was a great conversation. She was so friendly and, and and good-natured. Also, you know, thinking back to the studio days, I loved meeting and talking to Thomas Page McBee. Yeah, he was wonderful. He was so wonderful. And that book was wonderful. But we also just, the three of us just got on really well. And it was a lovely vibe. And he was one of the authors that afterwards, I wish we could have just gone for lunch or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I And I always wonder if the authors actually do want to go for lunch with us or they like intimate <laughs> that they do and then they leave and they're like, oh my God, I'm so tired. Having now done a book (laughs) tour, I can say that when I didn't want to have lunch with anyone, I made no overtures (laughs) towards it. (laughs) And if I did, it was because I genuinely wanted to keep talking to people. Okay, great to know. Yeah. And then I was also thinking just now of, do you remember that wonderful conversation we had literally basically 100 years ago, or essentially, actually, I can just say a decade ago with that author, Caitlin Doty, about her book, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. You remember that? How could I forget? Of course. Yeah, that was so fun. It was in the Curtis Brown offices when we used to do interviews there sometimes. Exactly. And her book was all about death practices and death rights and partly about her time spent working in a crematorium on Hawaii, 
where she said she grew up as like the only goth in Hawaii. She was so cool. And at the end of the recording, she said something to me that I can't quite remember. Maybe you can remember. She said something like she'd be really happy to cremate me or or that I would make a beautiful corpse or something like that. And I yes, remember. Yes. Do you remember? Oh. I should listen back. It's something like you would make a beautiful... Is it on... Did we even record it? Maybe it was afterwards. Maybe it was after, yeah. I think it was something like you asked her to cremate you and she said that that she said yes and that you would make a beautiful corpse. Oh my God. I just, I remember it felt like the most amazing compliment I'd ever received. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was really cool. And and I loved reading that book. It's it's a great book. Yeah, I that was, that was a really fun one. That felt like a breakthrough of an interview in some ways because it was just so fun and she was so interesting and great and we really got into our stride and it gave us a, a kind of template for how to do interviews. Right. And how to be a bit more confident to just be friendly and have a more relaxed conversation and it be less a like formal interview structure, I think. Definitely. What about you? What's coming to mind for you? Yeah, I am, after cracking the whip, I'm also having trouble answering my own <laughs> question or coming up with one person. It's so difficult to pick just one. Well, can you do some maths on the spot? Like how many, if it's no. 10 years? Well, what is it? Roughly 12? We did 11, 11 a year, 110 yeah. authors. And actually yeah. more than that, because some That's of the shows, amazing. we spoke to more than one person. Yeah. So 120, maybe? Let's say. That's a lot. We could, we'll do some math later, maybe, <laughs> if we want to. You'll do some math later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do have a real fondness for the interviews that we did at the NTS studios after they got the kind of separate studios set up, because there is something so wonderful about being in a room with somebody talking to them. It's a different kind of energy. And I was so relieved not to be doing the tech anymore. Oh my God. Like oh really, my God. Having my attention in two places and just being constantly concerned about the idea that we just might not record the interview at all took away from some of the fun. Yeah, I some particular standouts in that context were Viv Albertine. She's yes. amazing. She's so interesting. And again, a kind of older woman who we both idolized a little bit, yeah. but, but was so generous with her thinking and so smart and so fun. Ben Lerner, I really liked talking to, not least yeah. because we got some amazing merch, sweatshirts that we both still wear, but actually um, that really is doing down what I really enjoyed about him well also i am actually wearing the sweatshirt right now oh <laughs> <laughs> i am recording in the topeka school sweatshirt yeah oh uh, i'm not but it's i can see mine in my sight line because i was wearing it recently there we go so yeah Thank you, Ben Lerner. But actually, thank you more for your brilliant mind. And I love talking to Ben Lerner because he was one of those authors who had like had an essay to give on why he'd done everything in his novel, which is, you know, sometimes it's people arrive at ideas in different ways. And I just love the way he thought about his own writing. That was really yeah. interesting and fun. I love talking to Sally Rooney and and sort of like before... I don't want to say we were there before she got big, but you know, we did we did interview her <laughs> about conversations with friends before she had become this sensation and just having loved that novel, but also talking to her and being like, wow, this is a really special, interesting thinker. And I'm so privileged to be able to have a conversation with her. And Leila Slamani. Oh yeah. Love talking to her. 
Renietta Lodge, who became my client in part because we met when we interviewed her for the show. But I also just loved talking to her. And and that was one of those things where it was just amazing to be in a room with someone and and hear their perspective on things. Mm, totally. But also, you know, there we're talking about being in a room with someone, but there was a new, different kind of intimacy when we switched to doing things mainly online, which we had to do because of the pandemic, but then we carried on doing even after we were able to go back outside again. And I think partially because, I don't know, we don't do it with video. And it's the intimacy of podcasts when you have somebody in your ears we got from doing those interviews. So I love talking to Jenny Awful. That was our first ever internet interview. And it ended almost in near disaster because we thought we'd lost the files. Oh my God, I'd forgotten about that, Carrie. But she was so lovely about it and it was fine. Oh, don't even (laughs) say those words. That spikes my blood pressure. (laughs) Horrible, horrible, horrible. We were using a new program. We had no idea how to use it. It it did seem like a disaster, but then it was fine. Yeah. And she was great. Love talking to Rachel Kushner. Oh, yeah. She was fucking amazing. So cool. Another person you just, like, deeply want them to be your friend after yeah. having a conversation with them. And also, like, her frame of reference seems to be the entire world. She just knows everything, <laughs> yes. as far as I could tell. And maybe my favorite in the internet era was Honoré Fanon Jeffers. Oh, uh, yeah. Talking about the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. That was just such an emotional, warm, amazing interview. I felt like I learned so much from her. It was it was really cool. Yeah, she has such a phenomenal mind and such agility as a writer. You know, that book straddles so many different forms of writing so beautifully. Yeah, it's just been a pleasure to get to learn about people's minds and, and be able to ask them about process and just see all of the crazily different ways that writers arrive at what you're getting on the page. it's mm. It never ceases to astound me. But do you have a book that you discovered through literary friction that you want to talk about? So I prepared something for this, and this is also extremely hard, but I, I decided I can't break the rule for every single question. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do what you asked, and I picked one, <laughs> which is a book called How to Survive a Plague by David Franz. Yes. We interviewed David about this book in 2017, so you know a little while ago, and it's a book that I am so glad to have read. If you haven't read it, read it. And I think it would have a totally different resonance now that we are still living in a kind of pandemic. I I refuse to say post-pandemic because the pandemic continues. The less acute stage of the pandemic, I think it would would hit differently now for for people who aren't part of the queer community. But, you know, for anyone who's who is queer, it it has extra resonance because it's about the history of the AIDS epidemic. And it's such a moving, but it's also just impeccably researched and very, very cleverly and brilliantly told social and scientific history and a kind of recording of the oral history of this experience that just tore through a particular generation of gay men. And it looks at the grassroots movements of activists who actually, you know, as he gets into in the book, like many of these activists were HIV positive and they were positive at a time when the disease was still a horrifying mystery. And it was their tireless work that shaped the future of antiviral treatments and has gone on to save countless lives and has made the difference between AIDS and HIV being a death sentence to a, a condition that can be managed over a lifetime. These people were really, really remarkable. And I think it's also 
you know, it's not just an extraordinary book full of this vital testimony. And and David France is one of the men of those generation who lived through it and survived to tell the tale. But I think the really, really extraordinary thing about it is it it taught me so much about the power of organizing to affect radical change. And we live in a time when our governments cannot be trusted and we are butting up against like horrific inaction on really, really important things. And it's just a real rallying call that like, so what? You can make change, organize, get together, you know, stake your claim. So I think it's a book that will remind you how important it is to know about the struggles of those that came before you because you can learn from their tactics and apply those to whatever struggles you're fighting against now. And I think it's also a really, really important reminder of how quickly people forget and how important it is for us to keep certain things alive as generations slowly fade out, you know? Great answer. I actually forgot we had him on the show. Yeah. So I, I was digging back because I was thinking there's so many books that we've had recently that I'm like extremely pleased to have read. But actually, this is one that I, I think about quite often. I'm thinking about it a lot now as I'm involved in various kind of actions. And I and I refer back to it mentally. So yeah, it won loads and loads of awards and it, it's out there. And yeah, everyone should read it. It's such a special book. It's such a, it's such a great combination of, you know, personal experience, science, you know, just a, a narrative history, oral history, as you say, like a, a template for change and radical action. It's, yeah, it, it it's like the best kind of hybrid nonfiction, I think. Totally. And he was such a delight to talk to. He was really just a wonderful conversation. What about you? Do you have just one? No, I have two. <gasps> oh my God. Can you believe it? And they're more recent. One of them is, and it was the first one that came to mind, and I just have to say it, which is an author I've already mentioned, Honoré Fanon Jeffers, and her book, the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. And the reason I wanted to talk about, I mean, I've loved so many of the books that we've featured on the show. And the reason I want to shout this out is because it's one that I don't know that I would have read the whole thing if I didn't have to read it within a specific period of time. It is a brick. And, you know, I do have a tolerance for big books, especially now that I'm into audio. But this is, is this really large? And I could... I could totally see another version of myself thinking, you know, I've heard that's great, but it's just too big. I just don't have the time. And I had to make the time to read it for the show. And it ended up, it was one of my favorite books I I read in 2022. But honestly, it's one of my favorite books I've read in the last five or 10 years. It's just astounding. And it's I loved reading every minute of it. I think about it all the time. I return to Ailey, the main character, in my mind all the time. I return to the way that Jeffers tells history, tells American history, gives voices to the forgotten people of American history, gives a voice to the Black community. Just just a beautiful novel that shouldn't work, and yet it does. And I'm so glad it exists, and I'm so glad that I had to read it. And then the other one I wanted to talk about was I was just so glad to have read the poetry collection Soho by Richard Scott. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah, we interviewed there. Uh, there actually isn't a recording of this because we interviewed him live at the Wilderness Festival. I can't remember exactly which year, but my instinct is not necessarily to pick up a poetry collection and read it cover to cover. But again, I had to do this because we were talking to him. And this poetry book has become a touchstone for me. I, I returned to it a pretty 
almost annually, I think, and and read it again. I think he's such a beautiful poet. He's so good on love and alienation and shame and the queer experience. And I'm so grateful that I that I had the experience of reading this and and can continue to read his poetry. Yeah, he's amazing. He's so good on the body as well. Like the, yes. the, the bodily sensation of of all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a gorgeous book. I'm really glad you you reminded me of it. Great. This has been fun. Do you, do you have any other favorite memories from the last 10 years of literary fiction? Apart from at the beginning, turning up at god-awful o'clock in the morning at the booth in Dalston, the old NTS booth in Dalston to meet you, which was just actually always really exciting and grabbing us coffees on the way there and starting the day like, you know, will it, will it even be open? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, often it wasn't. Also, remember, we used to print out our show plans. And that was always like this panic where we would have to go if we finished it later than when I was at the office where I could print things. We would sometimes like have to go to an early morning print shop. Yeah, like one of those like internet cafes. And we didn't know whether they would be open. And yeah, yeah, it was a complete disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it was a high stress, high stress, high stakes organizational situation. I take some responsibility for that. But yeah, I think back so fondly to that and just like finding our feet and, and finding our groove as co-hosts too, which was like, has been a really amazing and rewarding experience. Learning how to have that kind of silent communication that you have with someone you know really, really well. And mainly, most importantly, someone that you really trust. I've co-presented with people who are not you and I do not enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't I don't know for sure that they have my back but I think that was something that I will always be so like delighted by that we figured out how to have a sort of semi-telepathic relationship even when we can't even see each other even online yeah, <laughs> yeah it's so we'll often end interviews and you'll be like I'm so glad you did that because it's exactly what I was thinking we needed to do and vice versa it's amazing I think we have similar instincts but we also have learned what the other person will do or would do yeah and I don't have any other relationships like that in my life that quite have that sort of telepathic sensitivity yeah it's really special it's magic there's lots of moments like that of just telepathic intensity but I, <laughs> but also there is one that oh my god I can promise you I will never <laughs> I will never forget showing Atessa Moshfeg my bra in the studio. Yes. <laughs> you evidently do remember, but after oh, we finished, I remember it so well. Oh my God, it was so intense. We finished the interview. We'd had this really powerful conversation with her. You know, she's a very intense person and, and the energy had been really electric, actually. We were talking about my year of rest and relaxation. And I hadn't actually noticed, We whatever we turned up, we were wearing whatever we were wearing. I hadn't noticed. And as we were saying goodbye, she stepped very close to me and she reached out and touched the collar of my shirt and she said in her amazing drool look we're wearing the same shirt it's from zara but yours looks so sexy what have you got under there and i as if hypnotized just undid the two buttons and showed her my bra <laughs> You did. I was there. I felt very uncomfortable, not because I thought it was this horribly deranged act, but just because I was like, I should not be here. <laughs> it was, like, it was, was, an it was a real moment. Yeah. And I was watching it and suddenly, yeah. Also your American accent. I'm sorry that it's just not how she talks at all. I know. I just, I didn't know how else to do it. I just remember the, the intensity of her voice. I can't remember actually so what she sounds like. She's, yeah. She speaks with quite a slowness though, doesn't she? That's yes. what I was trying to yeah. get at. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm, I don't mean to criticize. No, it's you are welcome to criticize. I can't do a British accent. 
I won't no. even try. So I I like that you went for it. I just I felt like I had to at least have a go. <laughs> yes. No, I appreciate that. It was yeah, it was very memorable for me too in different ways. It was an intense moment. And then, you know, we got into a long conversation about the bra and I recommended the bra and whatever. But yeah, it it, it was <laughs> it was a real experience afterwards. I was like, oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> but you do you know what? You obviously don't show all of our authors your bra, but I think you are really good at the kind of establishing intimacy with people. I've always appreciated that. I think I take a little bit longer to warm up and I'm always like trying to get us to start our interview and be on time for things and sort of like explain how the process is going to work. And you're just great at like getting to know people and making them feel comfortable by showing them my bra bra or (laughs) other means. (laughs) But you're kind of like our fluffer. I am the fluffer. I I will accept that. I am the fluffer. I turn up in a bra with a feather duster. <laughs> no, I loved that moment. It was insane. But great. It was insane. And actually, you know what, talking of like other insane things, that was, do you remember that time we had, I'm not going to name the author to be discreet, but remember we had an author and she came with her husband and it was when we were still recording in the old NTS booth in Gillette Square in Dawson. And the guys who did the show before us had clearly been blazing some pretty pungent weed and I'm playing like Gabba or something. And we were all standing outside the studio while they finished their set. And then we stepped in with these two like kind of incongruous grown-ups in basically like cashmere coats, like very elegant, older people. And the author declared that it smelled of wacky backy. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel like her publicist was also just like, is this okay? I don't know if this is okay. Yeah, I was like, these two people maybe don't fit in Dalston somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that but was she, really you know, funny. She was a great sport. It was it was a great interview. But yeah, it was there was a moment there of mm-hmm, maybe these things don't gel actually. <laughs> like maybe we should be in like an official publisher's space for this one. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was great. It was great. What about you? What about you? Oh, uh, yeah. Too many. Too many to name. I have very lovely memories of our first live show that we did mm. at the social with Faber and the Faber poets. We we sold it out. It just it felt amazing to be in front of a crowd and have our friends there. Also, our event with Deborah Levy at Foils was really oh, great. Yeah. Again, huge crowd, really interesting conversation. Just I've always loved those moments when we get to be in front of a crowd and see that people actually listen to what we're saying because sometimes <laughs> you, you don't know. <laughs> you know, it wasn't always actually fun in the moment, but I now look back very fondly to our makeshift setup in the early days because oh we God. had this we had this little round Sputnik mic yes. that we would all talk into and we'd set it up in random places in a table and we'd all sit around the table and of course the sound quality was terrible. And wouldn't you, you'd also lug a mixer and everything. Oh yeah. And those funny little mics and do you remember your dad, Larry Plitt, hooked us up with some amazing handheld mics for the occasion. Yes, he did. And he bought the mixer too, because basically he listened to the show and he was like, your sound quality is terrible. <laughs> and for Christmas one year, he he bought me a mixer and gave me some mics that his band didn't use anymore. 
and I used to bring the mics and the mixer and plug the mics into the mixer. Yeah, it was it was a whole thing. See, it dads. definitely improved our sound. I know, dads. Dads, it was so nice. Good, not just for jokes and not just for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should say it was probably a Hanukkah present uh, because Larry Plitt is oh, Jewish. Of course, sorry, I apologize. That's no, true. no, I said Christmas. I said Christmas. But yeah, and do you remember like? For a while, we were doing it in this very small, sweaty room in the Curtis Brown offices at where I used to work, oh my God. which I think was like a room they'd put together for the actors that they represented to do like test readings or whatever those screen tests. But they said we could use it. And it was so hot. It's so so airless and so small. And I have a very particular memory of being in there with Jesse Armstrong, who (gasps) then, of course, went on to write Oh My God Succession. I have forgotten about that interview. And he was so sweaty. He was so sweaty. (laughs) We were so sweaty. But he was so nice about it. But he must have been like, what is this like amateur hour? What are these weird mics? why am I in this room anyway no I literally remember all three of us wiping our faces with tissues it was so sweaty in there it was like unbelievable he was delightful yeah he was so nice about it (laughs) (laughs) he was so nice and we did some interviews in your old flat oh my god which was also really fun like Selena Godin Sarah Perry it had its own kind of intimacy I don't think again I don't think the sound quality was great but it was fun you know why that was also great because Lupo the kitten was there also. Yes, Lupo. Yeah, our mascot. Our mascot, the greatest cat that ever lived. Yes. <laughs> well, there are some other great cats. I can't endorse that. Look, One of there the are loads cats. of great cats, but he is the greatest. That's all I'm saying. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I also think back very fondly about some of the more disastrous interviews that we had just because <laughs> wait 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 what are you saying Carrie what are you saying what, listen do my lawyers need to get involved here <laughs> no all I'm saying it's what you're talking about with this telepathic thing that we've developed because always when it was going poorly even though we couldn't actually talk to each other in the moment about how poorly it was going we just knew <laughs> oh we God. knew and I was so relieved to have you there someone who had my back who could come up with a question if I didn't have one and we we just figured out a way through it together and we could laugh about it afterwards and we definitely had to get creative with some of our questions (laughs) I I once asked a particularly monosyllabic author about their relationship with their mother (laughs) we just their (laughs) answers were so short that we just ran out of all the questions and we usually have way more questions than we could ever ask in one session yeah and and it was like 20 minutes in and we were out of questions and yeah you just went full analysis on them just full (laughs) freud and they answered they did yeah to, to their credit but yeah i just again at the time not amazing but actually it really reconfirmed how glad I was to have you as a co-host there with me every time. Same, same. Absolutely every time, especially because whenever the thing that was going wrong was technical, I have no fucking idea. Like recently you had to like upgrade our Zoom in the middle of a conversation because the other tech wasn't working. And, And by the way, listeners, Carrie Plitt did all of this while down with COVID. So quite an extraordinary performance there. I was proud of that. I muted my mic and upgraded Zoom while the author was answering a question. And I was like, 
I might be amazing. You you are amazing. <laughs> this might be my proudest moment. What do you mean? There's no might be about it. You absolutely saved the day. Oh, that was stressful. Yeah. I, I don't want to do that again. It was very stressful. But anyway, yeah, it's it's been a pretty amazing... It's been longer than 10 years that we've been doing stuff together, but it's been almost exactly 10 years since we've been doing literary friction in its current iteration. And I will miss it a lot. I will miss you a lot. I'll miss having conversations with you about books. It's just been a wild ride. You know what's amazing is when you stop and think about how much growing up we've done alongside this decade. Like we're 37. So from 27 to 37, so many life changes, so many enormous shifts. And and this has been this like regular beat that runs throughout the whole thing. You know, every month we show up and we do a show. And then obviously in the last few years, way more than once a month, we, we record basically every week. So it's just, yeah, it's yeah. been a, a real honor and a privilege. Truly, truly. Same here, baby. It's been, yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah. What can I say? Long live well, literary friction. <laughs> literally not because it's ending. No, but it's going to stay up on the internet for a while, isn't it? Yes, that is Carrie. true. Yes. Long live the ghost of literary friction. That's right. In perpetuity, you can listen to our conversations, at least until we stop paying the subscription fees. Yes. <laughs> well, on that note, that's all the time we have for today in our last ever episode of Literary Friction. Thanks to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. And thank you again to all of you, our gorgeous listeners all around the world. You are absolutely amazing. Thank you also to the authors that we've had on the show over the last decade, to the wonderful book publicists who have sent out books and brought those authors to us, to the producers at NTS, in particular Rory, Josh and Paula for their total brilliance when we recorded in the studio, and to Tabitha, Alice and Porrick and everyone else in the office for their support over the years. We also want to say a huge thank you to Billy Temple for designing our gorgeous logo, to Eddie Knight for everything that he did for the show over the years, including his technical excellence and fantastic merchandising skills. And of course, to Daphne, George and Nikos at the Amazing Greek Podcast Project for their ace work on production. And finally, thank you to our wonderful patrons for keeping us afloat this long. You are all the best and we are so grateful. We are so grateful and we don't have anything else to tell you about what's coming up because this is our final episode so i'll just sign out and say that i'm carrie plitt with octavia bright and this has been literary friction Mm -hmm.